Welcome to the CPA Advisory Show. I am Jeremy Wells, and with me as always is my co-host, Chris Hervishon. How you doing, Chris? Best day ever, Jeremy. How are you? I am doing super fantastic because on this episode, we have a guest that, to be honest, when we started this show, I, I wasn't sure if we'd ever reach the point of getting this caliber of guest on our show. Uh, but I am super excited to welcome Ron Baker uh, to the show. Ron, uh, welcome, and thanks so much for being here. Oh, Jeremy, Chris, thank you for having me. So Ron does not need an introduction, for sure. He is a giant in the profession, but we'll do one anyway. So Ron started his career in 1984 with KPMG in San Francisco. He is the founder of the Verisage Institute, a leading think tank dedicated to educating professional professionals internationally and the co-host of The Soul of Enterprise, along with friend of the show, Ed Kless. He's the author of seven best-selling books, soon to be eight, which is also the topic of today's show, Time's Up. And beyond that, his accolades and contributions to the profession are way beyond <laughs> the time that we have. So welcome, Ron. It's a pleasure to have you. Thank you, Chris. Appreciate it. We're going to talk a little bit about subscription pricing today. And just to kind of level set, what is the difference between a subscription-based service and just a fixed fee monthly recurring type of billing structure? Well, first off, the acid test is, does the customer know they're subscribing? Do you know you're a Prime member? Do you know you're a Netflix member? Do you know that those are subscription plans that are cancelable at any time? Um, if the customer doesn't know that, then you're not in a subscription business model. And a subscription business model is not just a pricing strategy. It is so much more than that. When I hear, I, I wish I had a nickel now for every firm that told me, oh, we do subscription. We take our annual price, we divide it by 12, and they pay us monthly. So that's subscription. I even have one older practitioner. My dad used to do subscription because he got paid monthly. That's not subscription. Subscription is entirely new business model with a plus offering. You're going to the market with a plus offering. It can't be the same old, same old common offering. You go to the market with a common offering, and I promise you, you're going to command common pricing. You go to the market with an uncommon offering, and that's when you start to get into pricing power and uncommon pricing. So it's a completely different re-engineered business model. Innovation's baked into it. You're constantly, as Walt Disney would say, plussing the offering. You're constantly adding to it. And you're also covering the customer for anything that you're capable of doing. So the subscription business model surfaces simplicity. It's a frictionless relationship. It's convenient and it provides peace of mind. And that is an uncommon offering that will command an uncommon price. Now, you said a few things there that to... Uh, most, if not all, accounting firm owners, especially the ones like Chris and I run, where we're small firms, we're on, mostly on the tax and, and small business accounting side of things, uh, frictionless and always adding uh, on and always plussing up the arrangement. We have limited resources. We have limited capacity. We have external uh, factors that affect us. IRS is harder than ever. Uh, to work with. How do we do that? How do we keep scaling up and, and leveling up when we keep running into some self-imposed, but some externally imposed barriers to, to just the, the level of service and quality we can actually guarantee? Sure. And, and I understand the small firm issues, uh, 
but it's the small firms that are going to do this first because it's the smaller firms that are the most innovative. Revolutions start from the bottom up. They don't happen from the top down. So when we talk about business disruption, most of the time it's, it's coming from smaller firms. So I look at the smaller firms and say, you guys are well poised to do this. Um, the difference with the subscription models, it puts the relationship at the center. And here's the thing, you guys, relationships don't scale. Let's stop trying to kid ourselves that we can fulfill our mission as CPAs or EAs or whatever type of professional you are with a thousand customers. You can't have a relationship with a thousand customers, nor can you have deep, meaningful impacts on their life. And we have to recognize that we always have to have spare capacity in our firms to take care of our best customers when issues come up, like dealing with the IRS. So the subscription business model, the way I envision it for accountants, is less customers at a higher price. So you always have capacity, but you're taking care of them from womb to tomb. You're taking care of everything that you're capable of doing. I'm not saying that you're going to teach them how to fly and cook. You know, you're, you're drawing a box around what you're capable of doing. If you don't say, for instance, go to tax court, well, then you're going to have to find a specialist that you can refer them to if they ever get to that point. But if you defend IRS audits, then if they get audited, they're covered. They're covered, period. It, it's part of the subscription price. That's part of the uncommon offering. Even if they don't use it, they're going to see value there. If you're prime members, you get benefits at, practically every month from Amazon. They're, they're shoving new benefits at us. I don't use a lot of them, but I look at it and go, well, that's really cool. I could access their music if I wanted to at some point, or I might get same day service in my city at some point. Um, that's throwing a halo constantly over the value. So when they come to us for, with a price increase, they don't have to blame it on costs and labor and supply chain issues and inflation. They get to document all the ways they added value over the last two years as they did in a recent email that did raise their price. And because prices should be justified based on value. So all the constraints that you mentioned, working with the IRS, the difficulty, it's a function of having too many customers, period. We, 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 we CPAs, we professionals, I'm sorry, I keep saying CPAs, I don't mean that. I mean, we professionals or we accountants confuse being busy with being effective, impactful, and profitable. And we shouldn't do that because there's no correlation between the two. We said that, uh, we talked about that a few, Chris and I had a conversation about that a few episodes ago where we, we got to talking about how so many firms and firm owners are putting it out there publicly in, in social media and in accountants groups that they can't find staff, right? That they have capacity problems. And, and I think what you're saying is, is the, the gist of it. Right. Because we we to, you know, together, Chris and I came to the conclusion that it's not really a capacity problem. It's a or a staffing problem. Right. It's that you've overextended yourself. Why did you Absolutely. overextend yourself? Because you committed to doing too much for too many people at too low, uh, too low a price. That's right. So it's ultimately yeah. a pricing problem right now. Actually, it's a strategy problem. It, it goes beyond pricing. It's a strategy. Here's the problem with, with with us in accounting. We want to be Morton's steakhouse we want to be mcdonald's and we want to be vegan mexican japanese we we don't want to turn anybody away 
Now you tell me what would happen if you went to a restaurant that was all of those things. Would any of them, would any of the dinners be good? No, they would all suck because we're not focused. We don't stay in our lane. We'll chase down anything. The, the revenue model of most, of most accounting firms is a barbell. You know, they have some $500 tax returns. They might have some $20,000 customers, some 40,000. I've even seen 100,000, 200,000 within the same firm. Well, that's nuts. <laughs> that means you're trying to be a general physician, a heart surgeon, you know, a cardiac surgeon every other weekend. Um, it just doesn't work. And that has nothing to do with your pricing. Your pricing is driven by your firm's strategy and its positioning in the marketplace. Also your purpose, your why, but I'm kind of taking that for a given. It's your purpose and your strategy and your positioning that drive your pricing, not the other way around. Pricing is the last thing you consider. Hmm. Um, so for instance, if you're an airline, well, okay, what's going to be your pricing strategy if you're an airline? Well, it's going to be completely different if you're United or American or if you're Southwest. Why? Because they have different strategies and different positionings in the marketplace. So the opposite end of that bell curve where we're doing or trying to do virtually anything for anybody, depending, you know, regardless of, of their background, regardless of their price point, those kinds of things is the, is the subscription model. At least that's, that's what I'm getting from it. So is the extreme opposite then like Netflix, like Amazon, where he, here's the one choice you have, here's the price for it, sign up or don't take it or leave it. Or is there, is there some way to maybe wh whether it's transitioning from the old model into, you know, towards subscription or, or rolling this out to where I don't want to turn everybody away who doesn't want this one subscription offering at this one price point. Is there a way to kind of, you know, not, not turn everybody away who isn't looking for that particular price point or that particular offering? Well, you know, this, um, <laughs> this is an in interesting question because you can still have different price points within a subscription model. You can still have different tiers or pricing choices. Um, you just have to put more thought into it. it also, you don't need three of them. You could probably go to the market with two of them. Now that would have been hearsay or heretical under value pricing. We would have never said to anybody only offer two options. We always said at least three. If, if you're going to offer choices, you got to do at least three. Otherwise, you're better off just sticking with one. Um, but that's not true in subscription. Uh, there's lots of very successful subscription companies that only offer two choices. Uh, but it, it you, <laughs> so you can still offer choices. But here's the thing. You want to make it as convenient and peace of mind and frictionless for the customer as you can. Don't send the customer to the department of paperwork when there's change order and scope creep and, you know, get sign off on this. And um, you just want to say if they need it and you do it, they're covered. You're going to do it because what you're doing in the subscription business model is completely different than what you're doing in an hourly based model or even a value based price model. In subscription model, what you're focused on is customer lifetime value. You're not looking at the math of the moment. You're looking at the customer lifetime value because if you keep a customer for one year on subscription, you've got a 90% plus chance of keeping them for life. So subscription businesses build annual or, or lifetime annuities that are far great worth much more than it costs to acquire them. And that's the new profit formula. That's also going to make your firm more valuable when you go to sell it. 
when you go to sell your firm, any potential buyer is going to take your, your, your top line revenue and they're going to throw it into two buckets. One is recurring revenue, which would be subscription, which would be predictable. It's got a track record of churn, you know, lost customers. And the other bucket would be reoccurring revenue. Now, reoccurring revenue, we have a lot of as accountants because tax return every year, books every year, compliance every year, blah, blah, blah. But reoccurring revenue is still like a rash. You never know when it's going to come back. We do a lot of one and done projects that aren't that valuable at all because we never know if they're going to happen again. And so the buyer is going to discount the reoccurring revenue, but give you a nice premium, nice multiple on the re recurring revenue. So that's got to be factored into the calculation as well. What's your firm going to be worth when you go to exit? And so, you, you know, this is why it's a long-term uh, outlook with subscription. It changes everything. That changes your entire calculus. You're no longer looking at the math of the moment. You're no longer trying to figure out profit per customer, profit per job, profit per hour. All that is completely blown up. There's new metrics, new KPIs, new dashboard for subscription businesses that have nothing to do with time. Nothing. There's not a subscription business out there that runs on anything denominated by time. And that's why the book is called Time's Up. I mean, literally, subscription blows up the timesheet. It blows up thinking about time. Um, and in terms of pivoting, I think the best and most successful way to pivot to this model from wherever you are today, whether that's hourly billing, fixed fees, or value pricing, or maybe a hybrid, the best way to pivot is to start a new firm and cannibalize the old one. Because the mindset is completely different in this model. It has to be. You're constantly plussing. You're not, you're just taking care of the customer. And let's face it, when we ask people, why did you get into this profession? The number one answer I get around the world, wherever I ask this question, and by the way, whichever profession I'm talking to, doctors, lawyers, advertising people, you name it, consultants, the overwhelming majority say to help people. You can't help people if you got 2,000 customers. Sorry, you're kidding yourself. So one of the things that I'd like to unpack a little bit is this concept of plussing. And what that sounds like to me is that we're always making the offering better. So how do we, how do, we do that from a practical standpoint? What are some of the strategies inside of a firm that we can do to make sure that we're always making our offering better? And then also, how do we communicate that on the front end to a potential customer who comes to us and says, hey, I want to work with you. And we're, we're trying to sell and communicate our value, but we're communicating something that's got a future value that's totally intangible right now. Right. And that's always the problem with selling what it is that we do as knowledge workers, right? They don't know until we sell what marketers call credence goods. Credence goods, you, you, it, it's not like a search good or an experience good. You know, search good, we can all go to the market and pick a, tele, a, a TV, a computer. We can do our homework on the internet, search product. You kind of know what you're getting, a hotel room, an air, an air flight, whatever it is. But then there's experience goods. We go see a new movie, Top Gun. How do we know it's going to be any good until we experience it, right? But when we walk out of that theater, we'll, we'll, ha we'll have a very strong opinion on whether we lo loved it or hated it. Same with getting a haircut. Same with buying dog food for your dog. You don't know if he's going to like it until you watch him, you know, turn his snout up at it or walk away or, or devour it. But then there's credence goods. 
Credence goods, you don't even know the value even after you experienced it, maybe even for a year or two or more. How do I know my accountant didn't screw up my tax return? How do I know that for sure? How do I know my vet's not screwing up my dog? <laughs> right? So one of the things that signals quality with Credence goods is your price. <laughs> a high price signals to the market, hey, we're good. Now you got to back it up with a great customer experience, but I would say stop benchmarking one another, accounting firms, and start benchmarking. How does Amazon improve its customer experience? Has their customer experience gotten demonstrably better over the last five years? How, is, how does Disney constantly plus their experience in the parks? How does Nordstrom or Neiman Marcus or L.L. Bean or FedEx, how do these companies do that? Well, they try and remove friction from the customer experience. Let's give you one stupid example. Stop sending 200-page tax organizers to your customers. This, this, this is demoralized. I, this is customer abuse. Um, because when they get that organ, what, what the hell do I pay you for? You know, and why don't you know those things that you need to know about me? If, if I had a significant life event, did I sell my house? Did I get married? Did I have a kid? You know, all the things you would want to know that would dramatically change their tax situation. We should already know that because we should be in constant contact with these people throughout the year because that's how we can help them. So that's one way. Just make the customer experience better. Just give them convenience. Give them frictionless relationship. Cover them for everything that you can do that they need when they need it. Be there for them on short notice when they have emergencies. Simple example. I called my eye doctor because I needed a new prescription for my lenses because my lenses were scratched and my prescription had expired. Call him on October 1st, you guys. Now, this is an eye surgeon, and I love this guy. If he told me to play in the traffic, I'd go play in the traffic. I, I, I cherish his advice, his skill, and he's, his reception says, well, he can't see you until the end of January, January 29th, October, November, December, January, four months. The biggest sin today for businesses to make is to waste the customer's time. Now, the reason he can't see me until the end of January is he's got too many damn patients and he's not given me an option to subscribe to him. If I could subscribe to him, I'd be able to cut in the front of the line and get him tomorrow if I needed him. He'd always have capacity for his subscribers. And when I do see him, I'm going to read him the riot act. If you don't, I'm going to tell him if you don't offer a subscription that lets me bypass your four month waiting time, then I'm out of here. You have become dispensable in my life, expendable. You're, you used to be indispensable to me when I could get in to see you when I needed you. Now you're completely expendable. And we don't ever want to become expendable for our customers. We've got to have capacity to see them when they need us and to take care of them proactively, not just reactively. So to that end, we need not just capacity, but to, you know, folks to do the work, but we need capacity with professionals who can be customer facing and who can have relationships. Absolutely. And that's, again, going back to why did you join this profession? I did not join this profession to build the most hours, to do the most tax returns in a year, 
to sit in the back office and never have any interaction with people. I joined this business because I want to help people. Now, I know there's a lot of jokes and cliches about accountants not being personable and, you know, how do you tell an extroverted accountant they look at, you know, your shoes when they talk rather than their shoes and all of those jokes. And they're all funny. I love them. But the bottom line is when you ask people about this business, they'll tell you it's all about relationships. The problem is we say that. That's our rhetoric. Oh, this is a relationship business. But when you look at our business model, what are we monetizing? We're monetizing work services. And I'll tell you guys, services are a means to an end. They're not the end that we provide. What we really provide and what we're, we're capable of providing as professionals, even though we don't use this language or market it ourselves this way or uh, explain our value in this way, this gets back to your question about how do you demonstrate value upfront before they even decide to come with you. When you start talking to customers about what we really provide here are transformations. And a transformation is when you guide the customer from where they are to some desired future state that they have. That's a transformation. And we can do that over and over. We can do serial transformations for our customers, literally from womb to tomb. We can, we can plan their college when the kid's born. We can uh, you know, help them build a second home. We can help them sell their business. We can help them retire sooner. We can help them plan their estate and legacy for after they're gone. And all of these things are transformations because you're not just providing the services, the trust tax return and the estate tax return and the, all the other compliance forms that we have to fill out. That's just a means to an end. The end, the outcome, the transformation is, is, is those personal transformations that we guide. And when we do that, the customer's the product. We've completely changed the customer because we spend a lot of time as accountants talking about solving our customers' problems. What keeps you awake at night? What are your biggest challenges? Okay, we're great problem solvers. We're always going to be great problem solvers. If one of you guys' customers come to you and they've got the IRS on, down on their back, you can get them off their back. I know it's a little more challenging today, but you can do it. Um, but here's the thing. If all we're doing for our customer, this goes back to the common, uncommon offering. Common firms will say, we solve problems. When you solve a problem, you revert the customer back to the status quo. You don't advance them. I want to advance them. Be why? Because I'm capable of it. We all are. In our own little sphere of influence, whatever it is you do, whether you do CAS, tax, advisory, audit, you're capable of advancing the customer, not just solving problems and, com and doing compliance work. And when you start doing that type of work, guiding transformations and spending more time per customer, then you're doing interesting, impactful work. And that might make talent attracting a bit easier because it's more fun work. It's more chance. It's why they entered the profession and I think that's what makes subscriptions so powerful. There are a number of people who are listening who are saying like, look, I can't even find people to do tax returns. I can't find people to do bookkeeping. I can't find, you know, let alone folks who have the, the interpersonal skills to interface with customers. And then what I heard you just say is, or part of what I heard you just say is that we're not even marketing to potential team members the right way. Yeah, we're selling like what you're going to be doing as opposed to, 
what you're going to be delivering and how you're going to help a, a customer transform. So what are some other strategies in that realm that can help us to attract talent that's going to be able to deliver these types of transformations for customers? Attracting talent, in my mind, is the same marketing issue that we have with attracting customers. We have to have a, a, a desirable value proposition to the market. So when firms go out and they, you know, they bemoan the fact that they can't find talent, well, yeah, I'll tell you why. Um, your talent doesn't want to come into your firm and, and fill out a timesheet and account for every six minutes of their day, for one thing, and get berated when they go over budget and you know realization is down and all the silly metrics that we use to evaluate our firms. Nobody wants to work. Nobody wants to work in that environment. Apple doesn't put their people through that. Google doesn't put their people through six-minute timesheets. Uh, that's one big problem, and that's just part of the, the larger business model because we think we sell time. Everybody's got to track their time, and then that bifurcates your life. You're either, you're either billable or you're non-billable. And by the way, when you're non-billable, we want you to feel guilty as hell. You know, it shouldn't be your kid's soccer game. You should be billing, <laughs> you know, and that's incredibly stressful. Who would want to work in that environment? I certainly don't. I, I wouldn't do a timesheet if you put a gun to my head. And yet that's what we do. We eat our young. They, they spend five years in college to get a CPA, pass the exam. They're taking all these tests, doing all these papers, all with incredible deadlines, all without ever doing a timesheet. And then they come into the the accounting world and now they have to account for every six minutes of their day like they're prisoners and we wonder why we can't find good talent i'll tell you how to find talent get rid of your timesheet and go to the market and say if you work here we're going to treat you like an adult because we trust you you're a professional we know you want to do a good job we're not going to hold you accountable for the amount of time that you spend we're going to hold you accountable for the results that you produce for our customers and for the firm and I think if we just did that, we wouldn't have such a hard time finding talent, especially good talent. You know, stars don't work for idiots. <laughs> stars are in demand like you wouldn't believe. And the balance of power has shifted in the knowledge economy. The, the, the firms need the knowledge workers much more than the other way around because there's just so many options. First off, because we're just a wealthier society. So wealth brings incredible options and, hey, I don't have to make a decision. I can take two years off and, you know, tour Europe or whatever before I commit to something. Uh, wealth gives us those types of luxuries and firms are going to have to realize that the way they work even 20 years ago is not going to be the way they're going to be working in the future. They're going to have to adapt to a results-only work environment. And I'm not just talking about working from home. <laughs> work is something you do. It's not a place you go. You know, J.K. Rawlings wrote the first Harry Potter novel sitting in a coffee shop. <laughs> you know, we can, we can all work in the Starbucks as long as they have internet, right, and be completely productive. We're not, we're not subject to the rhythms and cadences of an assembly line. And the knowledge economy has changed all of that and that term, by the way, was coined in 1959, but yet you look how many firms, I walk into firms, and of course, my frame of reference is walking into Big 8 in 1984 when I started, and I'll tell you guys, the language, the metrics, 
are all the same from when I started in Pete Marwick Mitchell in 1984. They're all the same. The way that we're measured, the way that we're analyzed, promoted, it's all the same. And the only thing that's changed is we have more monitors on our desk and some people stand up at their desk now. But that's it. The business model hasn't fundamentally changed. And my question is, has the world changed in the last 40 years, 50 years, 100 years? That's when the Bill of Lauer came out, by the way, 103 years ago in, in uh, 1919. Uh, the world has changed. It's time to move on. And until we realize that we need to shed our industrial era, you know, command and control management style to a more um, open one that's based on knowledge workers, yeah, we're going to have a hell of a time finding talent because stars don't work for idiots. Hey, it's Chris. Thanks for tuning into the show, and we really hope you're enjoying it. If you like the show, please like and subscribe on your favorite podcast app. If you really like the show, please leave us a review, and we'll read it on the air. If you have a service or an app that is tailored to accountants and you want to get in front of several hundred accounts that listen to this show every single week, send us an email at host at cpaadvisoryshow.com. Okay, let's get back to the show. When I started in accounting about five years ago, one of the first books I read was John Warlow's Built to Sell. Um, I know you've had John on your uh, show before, and you're a fan of a lot of what he's put out there. And one line that always that 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 I'll never forget from that book was that uh, you got to get rid of the term engagement letter, right? Like real businesses don't have engagement letters. They have agreements or they have contracts, right? And so very early on, I said, I'm never going to have an engagement letter in my firm, right? That's not something that real businesses do. And when I see other accountants use that term, especially this time of year, since we're ramping up into tax season, right? A lot of firm owners are asking about engagement letters. You know, how should we change our engagement letter? How do we update it? How do we get it to the, to our clients so that they can sign it and update it and all that kind of stuff. And it's uh, and we talked about this with uh, your co-host Ed Kless, that it's, it's a language problem, right? That we're, we're yeah. creating and, and, and really enforcing and reinforcing these language barriers between us and our our clients or customers. I know you don't like the word client, you know, um, when you call them customers. But so how, you know, how do we start getting over these language barriers then? Because we do have potential customers coming to us that maybe they've worked with other accountants and they they figured out how they do it. And they're coming to us to do their tax return. They're coming to us to clean up their books for the year. They're coming to, you know, and they do want, or at least initially, right, they say they want very specific services and they want to pay for those services the way they always have, right? And they want to experience all the decorum that they're used to with their other firms, like walking into the into the boardroom and the brick and mortar firm, right? They want all of these things at first. And so is it our our job, right, as, as firm owners that are trying to not follow that model? Is is this an education problem? Is this an expectations problem? Is this, you know, how do we get around these uh, what what can feel like hurdles, right, um, to get around with when we're trying to use the, these different, you know, what, I, what I consider a more advanced and, more, uh, and, a, and a superior uh, business model for running a firm. Right. And you're right about the language. I mean, I, you know, all change is linguistic. At least it starts there. Uh, think about what Walt Disney did with Disneyland when he opened it. They weren't, they weren't customers. 
They were guests. They weren't staff or team members. They were cast members because this is a stage. We're putting on a show. You're either on stage or you're backstage or off stage. But boy, when you're on stage, you're selling happiness. You're creating great times. And Disney uh, cast members are taught they can go they can go off task to be on purpose. What's their purpose? Creating happiness. So when they see a kid who just bought an ice cream cone and it drops on the cement, they're allowed to walk out from their cart and bring them a new one. Even if there's a line at their cart, they're allowed to do that. And they do it. And so I just this just came to me because you're talking about how do we attract talent? How does Disney attract talent? Disney pays squat. Okay. I don't even know if it's minimum wage. It, it probably is a little bit more, but they have, I don't know, 80,000 employees at Walt Disney World. And there's something like 30 plus unions. How do they find talent? They have figured out a way to market that, hey, this is a great place to work, right? They've, they've created a great experience for their cast members, not just their guests. Um, but back to, so I think language is important. So I think calling them customers rather than clients, calling them colleagues rather than staff, which sounds like an infection, saying that we provide transformations as a service. Yes, we will help you comply. Yes, we will help you solve problems. Yes, we'll get you caught up with your taxes and all of that. But we really are here to keep you financially healthy, just like a doctor is there to keep us physically healthy. We're here to keep you financially healthy because I'll tell you, health is an asset and wealth is an asset. It's worth investing in and smart people, wealthy people know that and they will, they will pay concierge doctors 30 grand a year. So they, the doctors can keep them healthy. It's not, it's not, um, you know, having insurance, having health insurance doesn't ensure that you're healthy. Having a great relationship with a doctor who can know everything about you and spends two hours with you rather than five minutes and who keeps you healthy rather than just, you know, cures you when you're sick. That's the kind of doctor you that people that have money want. I think it's the same with us. We keep our customers financially healthy. And what is more important than that? So I think that um, one of the things that we should start doing is using the language of, of like medicine. You know, we're here to keep you financially healthy and we're here to take care of you when you need us. Um, but also to, you know, help you avoid issues and problems in the first place, right? I, I much rather be, and Ed Kless loves to say this, and it's so true, I much rather be a fire insurance salesman than a fireman. Now, nothing wrong about firemen. I, my big part of my family have been firemen, but the point is that selling fire insurance is much better. And we can do that because we can help our customers avoid problems if we have a deep enough relationship with them. We have 2,000 customers and we're jumping from one to the other without any, any downtime because we're running at 90, 95% capacity. Then, yeah, we're not going to be able to build those relationships. You mentioned I don't know health. if that answered your question, but <laughs> yeah, well, it's getting there. So <laughs> let me let me uh, let me ask this, and maybe this will um, you know sort of advance on this point as well too. Because a few minutes ago you mentioned KPIs and how the KPIs need to uh, change for 
firms, right? And you just mentioned uh, health, right? And in health, we talk about vital statistics, right? And if you if you can track and, and know your vital statistics, you can know whether you're generally healthy or not. And KPIs, I, I kind of think of those as the same way, right? They're the vital statistics of your business. Is your business doing well or not? So what what are some of the the old antiquated right, uh, KPIs? What are some of the KPIs that we get fixated on that we don't, we shouldn't be looking at anymore. And what are the new KPIs that you think need to be replacing them for a professional services firm? Uh, well, the old KPIs are revenue per hour, <laughs> uh, gross profit margin or profit margin per job, having an hourly rate, running a realization reports and utilization reports and managing the business as if those numbers mattered, which they don't, by the way, it's like plunging a ruler into the oven to determine its temperature. It's the wrong measuring device. I don't care how accurate the ruler is. It's not going to throw off a meaningful measurement because it's the wrong device. And so all the, all the metrics that we use, um, it, and now I'm specifically saying, if you track time, if you track time, I guarantee you, you're looking at these metrics because I think, you know, People have all these excuses for tracking time. Oh, we need it to measure the productivity of our team members. Oh, we need it to figure out profit per job. Oh, we need it for project management. That's a big one. And of course, we need it for pricing. My theory is you keep time because you always want to check your price. Because really, you're just billing by the hour. You may call it a fixed price. You may call it a value price. But you're billing by the hour if you're checking it against time. Because with value pricing, you're not supposed to sell time. So it becomes a superfluous data point. Um, so if you keep timesheets, all those metrics are useless and they're especially useless in a subscription business model because the subscription business model, even the income statement looks different. And this is, I got a chapter on this in my book about all the KPIs and even how the income statement's different, but the income statement starts with beginning annual recurring revenue. And then it backs out the churn of the loss revenue. And then it, it divides expenses up between recurring expenses which in our case would be things like technology and, you know, rent and, and human capital labor. And then it bracks out or it, it, uh, tracks separately, uh, things like R and D like, like education, things like that. And then also marketing and sales. And that's because we want to track customer acquisition costs. So matching is completely blown up. <laughs> We're not trying to match <clears throat> a check revenue to some specific service because we're not selling services. We're selling anything the customer needs. We're really selling access to ourselves and the ability to guide these transformations. And, and then of course you add in the annual recurring revenue that you gain for the period or it could be monthly too. Uh, and then, so it ends the bottom line in a subscription income statement is ending annual recurring revenue. It's a forward looking revenue model. It's not a backwards looking one like we do with a regular P and L based on matching and all these silly principles that we have as accountants. So all of, all of the income statements different. And of course, then the KPIs are different. You're going to be looking at monthly recurring revenue. You're going to be tracking churn, not only lost customers, but lost revenue from those customers. You're going to be tracking, um, how customers, uh, you know, spend their money, share a wallet type of thing. Do they upgrade maybe to a different tier? Are we growing the customers that we have, not just adding new ones? 
And there's a whole bunch of other metrics too that compare customer lifetime value to cost to acquire. And we like to see a three to one ratio there. You know, if you if you if you multiply cost of acquiring a customer times three, your customer lifetime value should be greater. And if it is, then you've got a you've got a healthy subscription business. The best ones have an eight to one ratio. The great thing about subscription, you guys, is these metrics, these KPIs, they've already been developed. We don't have to recreate the wheel here. There's two reports from Andreessen and Horowitz. This is the famed venture capital firm in uh, Silicon Valley. And they've put out two reports on all the KPIs that they use to analyze and invest in subscription-based businesses. And most unicorns are subscription-based. And it, it, the groundwork has been done. <laughs> we don't have to reinvent the wheel here. These KPIs are well fleshed out and they're empirically proven. So I talk about this in the book a lot, but those KPIs are completely different and they have not, tell me one of those that has anything to do with time spent. Yeah. So, so what I'm hearing is that uh, we just, as accountants within our own businesses have not done a good job keeping up with, with the times that we're still using antiquated ways of looking at financial reports and doing cost of management accounting and all this and trying to apply it to uh, an industry that it, it's just not relevant for if it it's ever not at all relevant. was. Yeah. 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 It, it's not relevant to a knowledge environment. I mean, cost accounting is probably one of the worst things that accountants, uh, well, and actually I, I need to correct myself. Accountants didn't develop cost accounting. Engineers did. I don't know why we're so attracted to it and so attached to it. We didn't develop it. Now we might've refined it over the years, but engineers developed it and they warned everybody hey, there's some really shitty math in here. Be careful using this. And there is. It's terrible math. How can you have net income change depending on whether you use LIFO or FIFO? If if you and I, if the three of us walked outside with a thermometer and it was a good thermometer, we'd probably get the same measurement. <laughs> well, that's because that's a measuring device. Accounting is a metric, which means there's a lot of judgment in it. And depending on whether or not we use LIFO or FIFO or depending on uh, or not whether I use marginal costing or full absorption of costing, costing or lean costing, I'm going to get different answers for cost per unit. You know how in Shark Tank they always ask, and what's your cost per unit? Well, good luck figuring that out. You know, Apple was asked on the stand, Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, was asked on the stand, and I think it was Epic Games sued them. And I've got this in my book, by the way. That's why I remember. It's a great story. They asked Tim Cook, the opposing attorneys asked Tim Cook, what's the profit of the app store? And Tim Cook said, I have no clue. Apple is a one income statement company. Steve Jobs did that when he came back to take over Apple in 97 as interim CEO. He said, because when Jobs came back, every, every branch of Apple had its own P&L. It was all siloed. And by the way, every P&L was showing a profit, but the company was losing a billion dollars a year. <laughs> how the hell does that happen? Well, because you have all these accounting games about how do we allocate overhead and how do, you know, between HQ and the silo, and there's all these games you can play. So he said, no, no, we're going to one income. Say this is one company and we all sink or swim together. And, we, you know, we split up tax and audit and advisory and 
this and that. And it's no, no, this is a system. It's like the human body. I can't cut off my hand at the wrist, put it on the table and expect it to write. It, it needs the entire system. And what that means, and this is systems thinking, but with systems thinking, you realize that some parts of the system have to be a heck of a lot less efficient in order for the whole to be more effective. You know, sometimes a surgeon has to cut off a, a limb to keep you healthy, to keep you alive. And we don't, we want to optimize every, we want to make efficient every part of the system, our tech stack. We want to be able to do this quicker and this quicker and this. And if we do all these things quicker, we'll be more effective and profitable as a whole. And nothing could be further from the truth. Systems thinking going back a hundred years has destroyed this myth. But we carry around this myth that, oh, if you spend less time per customer, you're going to be more profitable. Bullcrap. Bullcrap. That's just wrong. <laughs> Whether you spend 100 hours or 10 hours with the customer doesn't change your profitability by one dime, at least on a cash flow basis. What matters is the outcome that we're creating for the customer. And yet we're too busy tracking the inputs to track the outputs. So the, the chapter on KPIs is incredible in the new book. And I really liked how you laid out the new, the new P&L because I've heard you talk about it before and just seeing it on the page really just kind of ties it together. It makes, it makes a ton of sense. Now, what I'm wondering about, and this is, this is a little bit down in the weeds, so I hope you'll entertain me here, but uh, the new KPIs, a lot of it seems to, to hinge on the back of customer lifetime value. So if we're going to cannibalize the old firm, if we're going to a new firm, a new model, new strategy, new everything, how do we actually estimate customer lifetime value if we have no experience with it? <laughs> yes, customer lifetime value does not come off the income statement of a subscription business. It has to be modeled. And you guys, this is one of the most imponderable things. I'm pretty sure you need a PhD in finance to be able to, in actuarial science, to be able to model customer lifetime value. If you look at the Andreessen Horowitz reports, if you look at the way the subscribed institute does CLV, customer lifetime value, subscribed institute is the think tank of uh, part of Zora, which is the software company founded by Teen Zoe. Teen Zoe uh, is the guy who coined the term, the subscription economy. He wrote the book, Subscribed. Um, Andreessen calculates it different than Teenzo, and the five other places I've looked at customer lifetime value calculate it different. Look, it's a guess. <laughs> it's a guess. It's a model. You have to model it. You know, a model means that you simplify things. You, you, you know, a paper airplane is not an airplane. It's not going to fly real people, but it's a model of how a plane works and you have to model it. However, it works for you whether you use a discount rate, whether you talk about gross profit, whether you include net profit instead for customer, whatever, model it, get comfortable with it. KPIs are, the, you know, they're, they're theories. They have to be tested. Do they have any predictive value? If they're not helping you run your business better, get rid of them because there's nothing worse than measuring for the sake of measuring. You know, this is, this is something that, um, it's called surrogation. And this had, Wells Fargo is a great example of this. Wells Fargo had a strategy. Oh, we want to have deeper relationships with our customers. And they said, well, how are we going to measure that? Well, we're going to measure that by saying if they have eight or more accounts with us. <laughs> and so that gave everybody incentive to open up 
you know, checking account, credit card, investment portfolio account. And it's called surrogation. That was not the strategy, but this, the, the metric overtook the strategy. And they paid billions of dollars in fines and, and had set aside millions of dollars for litigation expense. I mean, it was the most expensive me measurement I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> um, and, and that's what happens when we try and measure too many things. You have to kind of keep it simple when it comes to measures because they have to be well understood by everybody in the company. So, for example, um, you know, I talk a lot in the book about DPC doctors because I think DPC docs are are amazing. They're, um, <clears throat> you know, they're they're about a hundred to two hundred dollars a month, and they're general physicians. And a GP can handle sixty to seventy, eighty percent of your healthcare needs. The average appointment with these physicians. Are, is is over an hour, sometimes two. Uh, they'll come to your home. They'll come to your office. They, they you can text them three sixty five twenty four seven. I mean, they're they're there constantly, and they have no waiting rooms. Now that's because they have six hundred patients. The average GP in the U.S. has twenty four hundred patients. Again, that's why I spend five minutes with my doctor because he's got to he's got to see fifty or sixty people a day. Why? Because he's trading fees for services. He's trading dollars for services. These GPs said, no, 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 we're, we're just going to have you subscribe to us and we'll do every, anything that, that we're capable of doing. He's not going to, you know, do heart surgeries and he's going to walk you over to a specialist. He'll sit there with you. He'll coordinate the care, make sure the specialist knows everything about you like he does. But uh, so anyway, what they look at besides the standard KPIs for a subscription business, and I'm thinking of Dr. Paul Thomas in Detroit specifically, he's got a set of KPIs that he looks at, things like for those customers that have weight goals, have we achieved their weight goals? Um, what's, what's our ability to reduce comorbidities? How have we saved our patients from needless ER visits, from needless diagnostic procedures? Um, you know, how much time have we saved the customer? These are all things that we measure because these are the way the customer defines success of their doctor. The, the, and this goes back to, I think, Jeremy, it was your question. Um, this goes back to what we measure. We, we measure things inside the firm that the customer could care less about. How many hours did it take you? And all these, you know, ask yourself why FedEx measures on-time arrival, <laughs> because that's what the customer cares about. The customer cares about, are they getting their stuff on time? Are we achieving our transformation goals? I think is even better, but we should be measuring the things that the customer measures, or at least feels or experiences to determine our success. And no customer measures the success of their accountant, by how many hours they log on a timesheet. It's their communication skills. It's their ability to help the customer and, and really uh, empathize or be compassionate towards them when they're in trouble and, and just be there for them. That's why we join this profession, just to help, pe just help people. And you can't do that if you have 2,000 customers. You just can't. So there's, there's, there needs to be a lot of modeling that goes into some of these new metrics for sure. Now, I'm assuming customer lifetime value for sure. Okay. So how about... Cost to acquire, which is another big one that, that goes into that model. It, that, now, this is just forces you to separate your uh, marketing and sales and advertising spend into you know that category and just 
aggregate it so you can figure out, you know, compare that to how many customers you're adding. Now, I will throw a curveball at you that we're starting to see because, of course, accountants think this way. Um, for the some accounting firms that have been doing um, subscription, making the, the transformation to it, um, and I think, Jeremy, this goes back to your point about how do we demonstrate value before they even engage with us, right? <clears throat> the, this guy I'm thinking about does uh, software implementation. So ERP systems, CRMs, and, and accounting as well, you know, migrating people from, say, QBC to Intac, something like that. And he said, well, what we decided, Ron, was we were just going to, the customer came to us and had this $40,000, you know, migration issue to a new software package. We were just going to do it and put them on a subscription, just our normal subscription package and just trust our value because it's going to come out of the gate. We're going to add tremendous value. And if we do that, we're going to blow these people away and we're going to lock them in for life. And he said, my question to you, and this was a great question. He said, the labor that I'm paying for to do these big projects that come right at the start of the relationship. I mean, this is like day one. They're, they're starting this project. He said, can I take an, even, even if it's just an estimate, I'm not going to have them fill out a timesheet, but just, Hey, I spent a month on that. So I'm going to take one twelfth of your salary and I'm going to book it to cost of acquisition. I said, hell yeah, that makes complete sense. You're making an investment now. Yeah. You're rolling the dice. You're taking a gamble, but all profits come from risk for crying out loud. You can't, you can't have super normal profits or windfall profits without taking a risk. He's taking a risk, but he's done this now repeatedly for about a year and a half. The customers are blown away. At first, they're a little dodgy. They're like, well, this sounds too good to be true. How do we know that you're going to assign, you know, enough talent to this and get it done on the go live date that we, that we have in mind? And they're right to be skeptical. He said, listen, that's our problem. If you don't see us hitting milestones, you have the ability to cancel. You know, this is the subscription is you can leave any time. There is no contract. There is no, he's not locking in people for a year or two to recover that upfront cost. He's betting that they're going to stick with them and it's worked and it's forced him to up his game as well to make sure that they deliver what they, you know, they keep their promises and their deadlines and all of that. So um, that's just a different mindset, isn't it? Just a complete, I'll give you another example. Netflix, Netflix, I think it was three years ago. It's in the book. I forget the date, but they sent out an email to people who hadn't logged in for nine months, or I think it was, or maybe it was a year, six, somewhere between six months and a year. And they said, we know you guys are paying us but you're not using the product and we don't want anybody to pay us if they're not using it. So we're going to cancel you <laughs> unless you, you know, come in and tell us that you want to stay. And I was thinking now I'm a recovering cost accountant and I repent every day of my life for it. But a cost accountant would say, those are the best customers in the world. They pay you every month and they don't touch you. There's no marginal cost. What could be, this is Nirvana. This is heaven, not in subscription. 
in subscription, you want them to use you. You want them to access you. You want to prove and demonstrate your value on a continuous recurring basis. And they did. They canceled it. And folks, this was like 400,000 subscribers. This wasn't a small number. They canceled them. But that's the difference between $10 a month and maybe $1,000 a month, right? Like <laughs> I wouldn't pay for nine months, $1,000 a month and not use it and not and forget about it, right? $10 a month, right. I might. So I think the accounting right. equivalent is, right, if you've got that $100 a month client or that $1,000 a year tax return and every this time of year, every year, you're wondering if they're going to come back for next tax season, right? If you put that client on a thousand or two thousand dollar a month subscription, where now you're also doing accounting, you're counseling them throughout the year, right? You're meeting with them, like you said, so you're not asking for that organizer. You know the big changes they've been through, right? That customer's not going to forget about you, right? They're not going right. to just. You don't have to guess whether they're coming back during tax season or not. You already know they are. This is the great thing I think of another great thing about subscription as opposed to certainly hourly billing, but even value pricing, you know, value pricing, we had to have an annual value conversation. Oh, what are your plans for next year? And, oh, let's scope out the services and blah, blah, blah. And, or we're going to have a, you know, we're going to send you the department of paperwork. If there's a scope creep so we can do change orders and all of this in subscription, they make the cognitive loaded decision to subscribe to you thousand a month, 2000 a month, whatever it is. And then that decision's over with. And we've separated it from the work. There's no direct correlation between if I'm subscribing to Dr. Paul, I might not see him for a couple months, right? But I'm, I still know if I need him, if I stab my hand or something, he'll be there. Right? So there's that insurance component to it as well. Um, but we've separated the work from the from the pricing. And that's just awesome. We're not putting a cognitive load on the customer every year. Hey, you got to renew with us for our fixed price agreement for 2023. No, it's ongoing until they decide to cancel. And because, and this is super counterintuitive, but this is the psychology that we're starting to see with subscription. When you give them the option to cancel, it's on every touch point, you know, it's really easy to find the cancel button in Netflix, really easy. I mean, they have apps that can do it for crying out loud, right? Um, when you do that, the customer always knows they have an exit. They're less likely to cancel. I've had Sirius for, I don't know, 12 years. And I don't know why, because I rarely use Sirius. I, I listen to so many different podcasts that I just don't have time to listen to Sirius. But I keep it. Why? Partly because it's become a habit. Now, sure, part is lethargy, just being completely lazy, which I'll cop to. But also, there's a piece of me that says, but I like the weather reports and the traffic reports, even though I don't use the radio. And it's the same way with clear. When I, Because I fly a lot, or at least used to pre-COVID. I'm a pre-member. I have TSA pre. I don't need clear. But when TSA pre is way too backed up, I'll go to clear. I always know it's there. It's like I'm paying for redundancy, but people will do that. Insurance is a strange product. We all pay a fortune for it and we're thrilled when we don't use it. I want to get in on that. This gives you the option to do that because it's separating the work from the payment. Well, that is a great point to end on. I think Ron, this has been an absolute pleasure and a thrill for us to have you on the show for sure. 
Now, if folks want to go and check out Time's Up, if they want to check out some of your other content, where is the best place to find you and where can they pick up the book? Best place to find me is thesoulofenterprise.com. And we're, we have a now, we're, we had a pre-order club for folks, but now, of course, since the book's been out, we're morphing that as it's going to be some type of community. So if you go to thesoulofenterprise.com slash Time's Up, you'll learn more about it. And some of the benefits that we're making available to this community are we're doing virtual events with me and Paul Dunn. Uh, we wrote the book together and we're doing Q and a sessions. So, uh, so far we did, we've done one event and there was a lot of Q and a, as you can imagine with this model, and we're going to do probably a couple more of those. And we've also both me and Paul, because the book is divided up into his section and my section, uh, Ed interviewed us one chapter at a time. And we talked, it's not an audio book, but what we did instead was we said, okay, this is what the highlights of this chapter are, the main points. These are some things that we had to cut out of the book that I wish were in there. You know, we gave some background on the book um, and uh, things that I wish I would have added to the book uh, because I learned it since it, you know, went to the printer and all of those types of issues. So there's going to be all sorts of benefits. We're going to probably going to start some type of Facebook group or whatever for smaller firms. And it's going to be smaller firms, which I love working with because they're the most innovative. You got a small firm, you can do this. You can, in fact, I'll tell you the, the group I predict will, will move to subscription first. We'll hit that. Um, you know, there's the, uh, early adapters, and then you get into the innovators, right? You get that two and a half percent of early adapters. You just have to buy anything that's new. They'll they'll buy. They'll, they bought the first drone. They bought the first VCR for thirty grand or whatever it was. You know, there's that two and a half percent. But then you get to the thirteen and a half percent that are the innovators. So it's those two groups that we're really targeting with this book. And I think the first profession that's going to make it to the to that level it's going to be the bookkeepers. Holy cow. For sure. You know why? Because bookkeepers have better relationships with their customers. Mm -hmm. They're in the coal face every day. They're out there in their place of business and they have fewer customers. Yeah. Most bookkeepers have 20 to 40 customers to begin with. So this is not that big of a dramatic transformation for them. Plus they, they intuitively understand better than accountants do that the relationships, everything. And awesome. the subscription business puts a premium on the relationship. So the soul of enterprise is the best way to find me. I'm also on Twitter at Ronald Baker. I'm also on LinkedIn. I'm one of the influencers. So you can read my blog posts there and um, can also email me. I'm happy to carry on this conversation with any of your listeners. If they have specific questions, Ron at Verisage.com. And also you can get the book on Amazon. It's also available on Kindle. And it's 60% of the $40 retail price on Kindle. So a lot of people like that. I love that you basically turn the book into a subscription itself. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, just, you know, so, I mean, we have a subscription with the soul of enterprise. We have a Patreon channel where we put out bonus content and we put out the pre-order club just as a way to try and gin up some, you know, interest in the book. But now that we have this community uh, and it's larger than I thought it would be, um, it, it, I want to continue the conversation because these are the people, the people that run out and buy this book, like you did, uh, Chris, they're the ones that are going to do this. And we're already starting to see it. 
we're I'm already getting emails from people telling me of the successes they've had converting new customers or existing customers over to subscription. And it's just really exciting. So I kind of want to keep that momentum going and share these stories with people. This can be done. It's not rocket surgery. Yeah, it sounds a little bit scary. It's different than value pricing. An another question, I'll, I'll just end on this and I'll shut up. I promise I know I'm way over time. Um, the we get the question, I'm doing hourly billing now. Do I have to go to value pricing before I go to subscription? Well, and my answer is no. You can you can leapfrog right over value pricing, all because there is no benefit in learning a bunch of stuff that you have to unlearn to go somewhere else, and you have to unlearn about two thirds of value pricing principles. So just learn the one third of value pricing that you need to know, and then you can I think you can leapfrog right over value pricing right to subscription, and I think you'd be happier for it. Um, and so I talk about that in the book. I talk about what principles of value pricing still apply but what's different. And I think you can leapfrog. Super good deal. Well, Ron, again, thank you so much for being a guest uh, here on our show. And uh, now we've had you and Ed, both of the uh, soul of enterprise co-hosts on here. And that's a, that's a little bit of a dream uh, for me as far as the podcast awesome. goes. So thanks again for being here. Thank you so much, guys. I really appreciate it and happy to come back anytime you want. Hey, it's Jeremy. Thanks for listening to the CPA advisory show. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others. Leave a rating and write us a review. We'll probably read your review on the air, too. To catch all the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at CPA Advisory Show. If you have a topic or guest you'd like to hear on the show, let us know by emailing host at CPA Advisory Show dot com. Thanks again. <laughs>